Good morning again, church. Uh, I really like uh, when we combine the services because I'm a second service comer. And I always feel like the first service comers look down on us. Second service <laughs> comers because we are not disciplined enough uh, to go to sleep early enough uh, instead of watching SNL or what have you. Um, so this levels the playing field, y'all. Um, so we're all going to get the same reward in heaven, basically. So I hope you know that. Um, so uh, our passage today is taken from Job chapter 40. We are nearing the very end of our sermon series on Job, um, titled The Good News According to Job, um, the Gospel According to Job, and I get the privilege of preaching to you from chapter 40. Um, and the title of my message today is God the Wise. God the Wise. Um, and just a warning, <laughs> I like road signs because it tells you where you're going. So this is a road sign. Um, Job chapter 40 is going to lay you out. Um, so just get ready. <laughs> Um, you are going to get some serious surgery in Job chapter 40. Um, but it's good for us, right? Because we have a problem. We have a problem. And um, so let me read for us the passage, and, um, and we'll get to it. Job chapter 40, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress like a man. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. 
He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Now let's pray. Lord, um, your word, Lord, you tell us is living and active. I pray that you, by your grace, would open our hearts that we may receive it as such. Uh, Holy Spirit, please anoint my lips. Uh, speak through me. Work in the hearts of your people. Uh, convict, convict, correct, and heal, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul uh, is talking to the Thessalonians, and he tells them, We were among you like nurturing mothers, tender with you. And among you, like brothers, we came alongside and encouraged you and supported you. We were also among you like fathers, charging you, exhorting you, challenging you, encouraging you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have. This is a father's sermon. This is a Father's Day sermon. And there will be blood. (laughs) Um, There will be a lot of blood. I'm giving you a lot of warning because I, I don't like, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's hard to, to say hard things, um, and, I, and it's a serious sermon, but I try, I'm trying not to take myself too seriously. I want us to take the Word of God seriously, um, because this is a challenge to me too, and my prayer is that it challenges you to realize that humility towards God and in front of God is the best thing for us. Three years ago, uh, Goda and I went to Ghana for my younger sister's wedding, and before we went, we knew that we were having an electrical crisis. Um, and it's, it was so pervasive, they've named it, they've given it uh, a name. Uh, one of the Ghanaian languages called Dumso. Now, Dumso means on and off, light and darkness. For three years, they'd been going through Dumso. And this was the schedule. For 24 hours, they would have light. And then for 12 hours, the lights would go off. And then for 24 hours, they would have light. And then for 12 hours, it would go off. And then they would flip-flop, flip-flop, flip for three years. Now, as Americans, you would write letters to your senators, your congressmen, right? You would do all you can to stop this doomsaw. So we had a few questions for our brethren, our Ghanaian brethren who were very calmly taking this, um, and they accused us. Well, I, I basically accused them of passivity, because the only reason why this hasn't changed is because they haven't done anything about it for three years. And they, of course, accused me of first world arrogance, <laughs> my American arrogance. How dare I? Two weeks I'm in the country, I already have solutions for their problems. Growing impatient with God is like telling him we know the solution to his problems. Job got impatient and wanted to tell God how to do his job. Job picked a fight with the only strong man in town, the heavyweight champion of the universe. So what does God do? Well, God had to flex some muscle. God had to put the fear of God (laughs) Into Job. In many ways, the whole book of Job has been leading us to this section um, that we are looking at today in Job 40, where Job confesses his own ignorance and insignificance in the grand scheme of things. The book of Job aims to humble us. 
See, the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job all aim to teach us that God is the only one who gives wisdom no matter what. No matter what our experiences have been, God is the one who gives wisdom. No matter how many books you've read, God is the only one who gives wisdom. No matter how many degrees you have, God is the only one who gives wisdom. Experience is not the best school teacher. God is. The truly wise are those who, by God's grace, have been brought to a place where they realize that, yes, the world works according to certain general principles. If you work hard, you'll be rewarded. If you raise your your kids in a certain way, they'll turn out that way. If you pray persistently, God will answer your prayers. Yet, wisdom says, leave room for God to shake things up because he's wiser. Fear him. That is the first principle for everything. If you don't get this, the Bible says you have not grasped wisdom yet. You might actually be a religious atheist or a functioning agnostic. You believe there is a God, you just don't want a vibrant relationship with him. You just want him to give you the rules so that you may follow, so that he stays in his lane and you stay in yours. You rarely pray for wisdom because you know what needs to be done. Now, prayer is actually a really good place for us to evaluate our attitude towards God, what we believe about God, what we think about God, what we expect from God. Now, if the only time you pray to God is when you've tried everything and that's your last result, check your wisdom. If the only time you pray is when you're in a crisis, check your wisdom. Like I said, God is the only strong man in town, and he takes Job into the ring to show him that he has three problems in picking a fight with God. The first problem is that he has weak hands. The second problem is that he has a weak back. He has a posture problem. And the last problem is that he has weak eyes. He is not seeing properly. And we know that the ring worked because at the end, Job indeed realizes that he is a lightweight in comparison to God. In comparison to God's glory, he is a lightweight. Now, the word glory in the Hebrew simply means that God is heavy. God is heavy. He is dense. He is all-consuming. Which brings me to my first point. God tells Job, suit up. Get your weight up. Now, this my first point is the longest point, okay? So, <laughs> it's the longest point. So, it gets, it's top-heavy. It's like a muffin. It gets, it, gets, uh, it gets less as we go on. So, Fret now, you will get out of here to have Father's Day brunch. Um, 
My former pastor used to say, your arms are too short to box with God. See, Job's arms were not only too short, they were too weak. He could go toe-to-toe with his wife and his friends, yet he and God were in very different weight classes. See, up till now, we've we've had 36 chapters of Job boxing with his wife and his three friends. His wife tells him to curse God and and die. He tells her she's speaking without wisdom. Indeed, he tells him, you sound like one of the foolish women. Poor woman, she doesn't even get past the first round. And we hear nothing of her again. His friends hit him with the, uh, no one righteous has ever suffered like you, Job. In his, excess, uh, in his anger, Job tells his friends, when you speak, all I hear is wind. His other friends tell him, you don't even believe in God. You're an atheist. That's why this is happening to you. And last week we found out that Job's response was that, I know my Redeemer lives. The fight gets so messy, sometimes you don't even know what to make of this Job guy anymore. You wonder if his real problem is not self-righteousness. And then a self-righteous young man who just graduated seminary named Elihu comes up to Job and tells him, Job, your problem is self-righteousness. After all this fighting, Job still can't find no satisfaction. But when God gets in the ring with Job, he finds that he has a weight problem. And Job realizes this right away. Now, there are two insights I want to highlight from the first section of uh, chapter 40, which is from verse 1 to 5. And the first thing is this. God speaks directly to Job. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I like that God speaks directly to Job. God speaks to Job, not the whole group. God has a face-to-face with Job. Yes, God is to be feared, but God is extremely personal with his people, even when they go astray. See, poor Job, it would have been better for his friends not to have burdened him with their poor theology and let God speak. And I'm glad that the book ends with God being the one to speak. See, sometimes we are so eager to defend and explain God, we forget that God can and has spoken for himself. Application point here is that we should point people to the word of God rather than trying to figure out how to best, with our best wisdom and our best knowledge, solve their problems. Point people to the word of God. Ask them, what do you see here? What do you read here? What do you think the Bible here is saying? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us, for the word of God is living Do we believe that? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of bones and marrow. 
soul, and spirit, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You cannot discern the thoughts and intentions of anyone. You can barely discern the thoughts of your own intentions. Let the word do the work. That way you won't look like the bad guy either. Verse 13 in Hebrews 4, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. See, if you want to gain wisdom, meet God as he presents himself in Scripture. Let him unsettle you. Let him unsettle your friends. It's good for you. See, I suspect some of us are more interested in discussions over Scripture versus letting it cut us and evaluate our lifestyle because it's uncomfortable. You see, it is one thing to talk about a cage lion when it's in the cage. It's another thing to open the cage and get in the cage with the lion. You learn a few things. I dare you to get in the cage with the word. I promise you, you will come out with some bruises. But you're going to learn some things too. There's a lesson here for all of us who are trying to avoid talking about the wrath of God because it embarrasses us. See, later Job would say, I heard of you, but now I see you. Now I behold you. See, you were blurry at first. This was Job's eureka moment. This is when the light bulb went on for Job. There I say, because of what Job suffered through wrestling with the word of God, Job is more enlightened, not less. See, God does not, God doesn't need us to be embarrassed because he sounds like a warlord. Which is actually a false reading of both the Old and the New Testament. If you ask me, warlords are trying to be God and they fail. Not the other way around. They fail miserably. See, God does everything in his power. Read the scriptures. God does everything in his power to get close to man. Everything to redeem man, to save man, to heal humanity. Read the scriptures with these lenses, and I promise you, you'll be surprised what you find out about God and his rock. See, God, God's word wounds, but it also heals the brokenhearted. It'll quiet our anxious souls if only we would let it wound our pride more and more. See, before we can cast our anxieties and cares onto God, we need to be humbled under his mighty hand. As the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, 
Secondly, Job is calmed. He is contented. He is cooed like a weaned child, as we read in, uh, in the Psalm of Ascent. The thing that Job had been longing for, the satisfaction that Job has been searching for, he finally gets it. After 36 chapters of going back and forth with his friends, Job finally has satisfaction. He is finally contented. Now, side note here, um, Job actually does not get his questions answered. Read, read, read Job. Read the book. He doesn't actually get his, ans- his answers to the questions he's been asking. God does a really interesting thing by taking Job out of the seat, the questioner, and puts himself in the seat of the questioner. And Job exclaims, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. See, basically, Job concludes that he's a lightweight in comparison to God and had spoken out of turn. I said earlier that God had to flex his muscle for Job, and on the surface, it looks like God is totally bullying Job. Can I ask you a question? What do you think suffering people need today? What do you think suffering people need when the world and life does not make any sense? Do you think they need more people making empty promises about the future of focusing on past hurts? See, God, I love the song that Natalie just did today. God is not here to talk about past hurts. He's not here to make empty promises about the future either. He's here to deal with us where we are right now. See, God is the best historian you could ever find. He knows the intricate details of everything that ever happened. If you were to bring it up, it would overwhelm you anyway. And if you were to make promises for the future, you won't know how to handle it anyway. So God doesn't get into all that. He wants to meet you now where you are. Flaws and all. Fears and all. Anxieties and all. He wants to heal you right now. See, contrast this picture with what we see in chapter 1 and chapter 2. See, in chapter 1, God is super proud of Job. And I'm fully convinced he's still proud of Job. That's my boy, Job. See, fathers, there's a lesson here on this Father's Day. God is extremely personal. His attitude is not just sanguine. He's not just, he's not just monotone, right? When he was proud of Job, he said it. But when he's disappointed with Job, he says it as well. 
He doesn't always just chide. But he also cares about how he's represented, even by his best people in the world. He cares very much about his honor. He cares very much about his glory. God's honor and his glory is not a matter of indifference to him. God's honor and his glory is not a matter of indifference to him. Suffering people have no need for a God who is always smiling like everything is okay. Everything is not okay. Like everything is going to be okay. We don't know if everything is going to be okay. Do you? (laughs) Because I don't. We need to know that God is personal and does have the power to punish the wicked and will punish those who did this to us and those who are doing this to us. Yes, suffering people must also repent of their arrogance and self-reliance. Suffering people need to know that No one's arm is longer or long enough to box with God, no matter how bad things get. God is the only strong man in town. Now, if you're a visitor, or even if you're exploring Christianity, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I do want you to know that this is not all the Bible says about God. But that's our focus today. The Bible does say this about God. He cares about his honor. He cares about his glory. He cares when he's offended. And if you're in Christ, he's going to deal with it. He is going to forgive us for our dishonor and for our sins. Which brings me to my next point. From chapter 38 up to now, God has been chewing Job out. God needed a few minutes in the ring with Job. We know God is pretty upset because we are told he's raising his voice. In fact, he speaks out of a whirlwind. Something like a hurricane, to be exact. See, notice again that this is not what God sounded like in the first few chapters. Let's just keep that in mind. Something has transcended between chapter 3 and chapter 37. God is raising his voice for a very good reason. Now, why does God feel the need to come to the conversation with a hurricane? Simple. God wants Job to realize that he has an attitude problem. And he needs to check himself. To be specific, God wants Job to know he is being a fool. At least the Bible's definition of what a fool is. He might not have cursed God, but he was being a fool. Yes, the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
According to Job, the fool also says in his heart, God's got some splaining to do. He was being foolish and thinking God owed him an explanation. As if he was in a position to approve or disapprove what God was doing. What God decides to do. As if we are in a position to evaluate the merits of what God is doing. Are you, are you humbled yet? <laughs> I was. Happy Father's Day. Spreading the love. So God held his breath long enough, and when he spoke, it came out with strong winds and a definite chance of torrential downpour. Like a good father, except it wasn't just saliva. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4, we are told, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. No, I'm sorry. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. See, now God had played that game and he won. So God had to play a different game called, Answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. God indulges Job in a bit of foolish talk. Now, this would be a good place to mention that the book of Job is about Jesus. What do I mean? Read the Gospels and see how Jesus deals with those who are wise in their own eyes. And you find that the real hero in the book of Job is Jesus. He's the perfect friend who comes and mourns with us. Not only mourns with us, he literally takes our position. But he's also the faithful friend who wounds us. He gives us the hard medicine to swallow. This is why we are told in the letter to the Colossians, that in Jesus Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, after holding his breath long enough, God speaks in a whirlwind and indulges in a bit of foolishness with Job. So he tells Job, okay, how about this? You play man, I'll play God. You be the man, I'll be the God. Let's go for three rounds. Round number one, verse nine. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Flex your muscles. I'll flex mine. Make your voice thunder. Get loud. Get angry. Get really angry. And I'll speak through a hurricane. And I'll show you how to really get mad at the situation in this world. I'll show you how I really feel about the situation of the world. I'll show you. See, when God speaks of his arm, he's not talking about his, his macho like some human being. He's talking about his ability to deliver 
people from their struggles, from their troubles. It would be silly to assume that God is literally comparing muscles. And when God speaks of his voice, he's highlighting his ability to bring destruction in his anger to a place through the winds of a hurricane. Round 2, verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Dress in all your pomp, Job. And how put on my glory? See, basically, God is asking Job to dress up in war gear. Let's go to war, Job. I'll, I'll flex my nuclear power. God is basically calling us all little rocket men. Bring your rockets. Bring your strongest nuclear power, and I'll bring my natural disaster. Let's see how that goes. Let's see who wins this fight out. Verse, round number three, verse 11 to 13. He says, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. <laughs> look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind your faces in the world below. See, in your righteous indignation, Job, Deal with the wicked as you please, and I'll do the same. See, if, 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 Job could, if Job could, the worst he could ever do to a proud person, a wicked person, a person like a Hitler or a rapist or a murderer, the worst he could possibly do to that person is take their lives. Then what? Then they're dead. Okay. There's not enough justice nor satisfaction in Hitler just dying. I'm sorry. That's not payment. That, that's not enough payment for me. I want to know that he is going to be punished for a long time. Maybe that's just me. See, I struggle with hell is the fact that we lack empathy. We lack empathy. Not only that, we lack an understanding of who God really is. Jesus tells us not to fear man because the worst man can do is to kill your body. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are you humbled yet? I hope you are. See, Job was being unwise in his attitude. And he needed to learn that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. God tells Job, the only way I'll explain myself to you is if you could close the gap between God and man. Verse 14, then I will acknowledge that you, then I'll acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. See, Job had gone 
way out of his orbit without oxygen. And God in his grace is bringing him down back to earth. Job had gone too close to his maker without the appropriate attire. And God had to bring him down. He needed a slice of what my sister calls humble pie. Don't we all? Don't we all need some humble pie in our lives? Which brings me to my very last point, which is the shortest point, and I know I'm over time. God tells Job, suit up. Put some ice on your eyes. I know it's swollen, but I want you to see something. Humble pie was not finished, so God gave Job another slice. Job had to realize he had a vision problem. He had a sight problem. What do I mean? He commands. He's commanded to behold behemoth. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but it's behemoth. Verse 15 tells him, pay attention to behemoth. Now, what in the world is a behemoth? Or what is so important about it that we need to pay attention to it? Okay, behemoth has become a mythical creature. And don't Google it because you'll get absolutely no help. (laughs) Some even say it's a dinosaur. Specifically, a brontosaurus. Based on the descriptions, now let me give, where's Cindy? Cindy, let me give Cindy the credit for this one. She totally helped me uh, realize that there's this option, and I took it. (laughs) Um, But the commentators think it's something between an elephant and a crocodile and a hippo. I like the brontosaurus better. Behold, the brontosaurus. Now, um, if you are not into dinosaurs, um, and you think I'm preaching heresy, um, I just want you to know that um, you can take that to the elders. Our, Our policy as a church is that there is variance. Okay, you're allowed to have some varying views. Even in the PCA, the PCA has varying views on this. Okay, uh, evolution and all. Not, not macro, it must micro, okay. Um, not only that, notice this. This is why denomination has varying views. Because um, notice that God said he made this creature. Um, where is it? Verse, verse 15. He made this creature, okay? I don't think it's out of God's imagination to make that creature. God commanded Job to pay attention to Behemoth because he can observe some things about God's character through him. See, Job in his frustration got it twisted and was demanding to be in a room with God. So God does the next best thing. And tells him to bring to mind one of the creatures that he's created. And tells him, try to be in a room with this creature. Try to be in a room with my pet, Brontosaurus. Try being in a room with him first, and then come see me. He's my secretary. 
According to the Bible, creation has always been enough to humble humanity to fear God. Romans 1 tells us that although people know there is a God based on his creation, they have chosen to ignore this reality and suppress the truth to their own moral decline. God spoke through a hurricane as though to tell Job, are you sure you want an audience with me? See, it'll be good for people to go to from time to time or to go to Jurassic Park or to watch a video on YouTube of man versus nature. From time to time, it'll be a healthy dose of humble pie. (laughs) Here God is saying, take a look at this animal, Behemoth, and see if you can tame him. He tells Job in verse 19, He is the first, or the chief of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. In other words, I brought Behemoth into the world, and I will take him out if I want. It's ironic, it's a little more than ironic that dinosaurs are not here anymore, but you can ponder on that on your own. Here, I mean, he, he goes on in verse 23 to show Job that although people are terrified of the sea, which was the most terrifying thing in the ancient time, Job, although you're terrified of the sea, Behemoth is not. And I made him and the sea. And you, you have the nerves to question me? You have the nerve not to fear me? You have the nerve not to be afraid of me? Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a sneer when he is alert? Can you tame him? It's gone. But do you think Job can tame a Barnthasaurus? See, I can take out Behemoth anytime I want, Job. Can you go toe-to-toe with him? In a ring, with his eyes alert? Can you keep him as your pet? Can you trap him? If you can, then you'll be justified to talk to me anyway. In conclusion, why is God so hell-bent on terrifying Job? I don't think God was hell-bent on terrifying Job. I think God was just being God. Every other time, he chooses not to terrify us. Praise God for that. But I think God chooses to review a little bit of his anger because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I must confess, I felt very sorry for Job because I thought the book of Job was about Job. You'll think it is, right? That's the title of the book. But the book of Job has actually very little to do with Job. It has everything to do with God. See, when the hurricane shows up, 
Job's suffering really become insignificant in his eyes. He sees that the one behind the hurricane is still in control. The one who has put his life into a whirlwind is still in control. See, God would not always chide. He would not always be upset. In fact, in Christ, God turns the volume way, way down. As low as he can get. He turns the notch up, down so much so that we can comprehend him. He covers himself with so much that you and I can draw near to him. Yet this hurricane season, keep this in mind, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have condescended to us, that you have brought yourself so low to us. Forgive us, Lord, for when we take that for granted. And help us, Lord, to fear you as we ought to, because we do know that the fear of God is indeed the beginning of wisdom. Pray that, Lord, in our hearts you would work to remove all the obstacles that prevent us from seeing you as you truly are, and help us to humble ourselves before you so that you may lift us up. Amen.